This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Animals don't want a car, they don't want a house, they don't want a paycheck, they just want one thing, they want to live. And we as a species continually take that away from them. An animal the size of a truck killed for something you can hold in one hand so someone on the other side of the world can sit it on their desk. That for me was confronting, made me want to do something about it. When a new class of Akashinga Rangers is sworn in, they all take an oath. I want to use my skills and training. I want to use my skills and training. To protect these animals. To protect these animals. To protect this land. To protect this land. In this mission. In this mission. I'm prepared to give my life. I'm prepared to give my life. This is my duty. This is my duty. Today, you're going to hear about the group of women who are rewriting the story of conservation in Africa, as well as their leader, whose early career in some of the most elite military units in the world readied him to change the world in ways he never expected. Are you ready? Let's go. Akashinga is the world's first fully female, professionally trained, armed, plant-fed anti-poaching group, and they are no joke. So it should be no surprise when you learn that the group was founded by an elite Australian military specialist. His name is Damien Mander. His story is fascinating, surprising, and full of twists and turns. I think you're going to like this one. But before we jump in, you can find out more about Damien Akashinga and the International Anti-Poaching Foundation at IAPF.org. You can follow Damien at Damien underscore Mander on Instagram, and you can watch the National Geographic short film called Akashinga, The Brave Ones on the IAPF website or on Disney+. It was executive produced by none other than James Cameron, and it's a really fantastic film. I highly recommend it. And you're going to be hearing some clips from the film in today's episode too. We have all these details in the show notes as well. And if you're interested in wildlife adventures or just Africa in general, we have a bunch of great episodes to explore. So listen at the end for that list. But first, welcome to Armchair Explore, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer and your host. And whether you've been listening for years or you've joined us recently, it's great to have you here. If you like travel and adventure, you're in the right place. We're going to get on well. So I've been to Africa twice, once to Morocco, where I did a story about walking with the Berbers or Imazajin, as they prefer to be known. Amazing. Met a guy called Hussein who showed me around the foothills of the Atlas Mountains and took me to a traditional Berber market in the middle of nowhere. I had the most intense culture shock I've ever had. I absolutely loved it. And I've been to South Africa. This was before I was a travel writer, just kind of bumming around Cape Town, the garden route, and up into Kruger National Park. I got fake charged by a baby elephant. It was cute and terrifying in equal measure. I heard the howl of lions at night, and I felt something that I have never felt anywhere else or since. They call Africa the mother. It is the place we all come from. And I can't explain it, but somehow when you're there, you feel that, like something tingling in your DNA. And I hope I can give you just a glimmer of that feeling with this story today. 
So we're just about to kick off, but super quickly, if you enjoy this show, please help spread the word. Tell one friend about one episode you love. That's it. It makes a huge difference. So thank you for anything you can do. And hit me up on socials too, at Armchair Explorer Podcast. I want to hear about your African adventures, your favorite wildlife encounters, and where you're dreaming of going next. Personally, I'm dreaming about one day buying an old Land Rover with a pop-up tent on the roof and driving across the entire continent north to south. I'm summoning that adventure into my future, so make sure you summon up your adventures too. It's going to happen. Finally, Armchair Explorer is now a part of APT Podcast Studios, and they have a bunch of other great shows, and they're just an awesome bunch of guys, so please check out aptpodcaststudios.com for all of those. But don't worry about that right now because the adventure is about to begin and it's time to head into the bush. Akashinga is 600 women strong and growing fast. Nowadays, when they send out a call for new recruits, there are answers in tidal waves. And the reason is they've reinvented not only what conservation can be, but what a woman's life can be in their small communities. These women have already survived more than most of us. Abuse, assaults, extreme poverty. But as Akashinga Rangers, they've turned around their lives and their communities, not to mention save the lives of thousands of animals. But this story begins long before Akashinga was a reality, before it was even a whisper of an idea. It began in Australia with a young, hot-headed boy named Damien Mander. So I grew up on the east coast of Australia, joined the Navy at the age of 19, became a clearance diver, you know, fulfilling a number of different roles from maritime tactical operations to mine countermeasures. After September 11, the Australian government set up a response group, a new special operations team called Tactical Assault Group East went through the selection there and was one of the last 60 guys to get through and then went on to snipe a platoon. I served my time there before deploying to Iraq in 2005, just as the insurgency was rising up and I spent the better part of the next three years in Iraq. During those years, Damien became a manager at the Iraq Special Police Training Academy. The job paid him handsomely, but it wasn't easy to stomach. Each day, he would face a group of new recruits, young people, more boy than man, whom he had six weeks to train. That's it. And after those short weeks, the recruits were sent to the front lines where Damien knew they would either desert, join the militia, or be killed. I was too young and inexperienced, he says, to ask the right questions about the wrong practices. He was only 27 years old. Finished up in Iraq and didn't really have any new direction in life. And I'd lost the mission, lost the purpose, lost the brotherhood that I had around me. I had done pretty well through residential property investment. I had served in some of the most elite military units in the world and had survived three years at war. So in my mind, I'd done pretty well. Being in a pretty financially comfortable position took myself on what I termed a, a year-long hiatus. And that turned into a pretty rapid downward spiral of drugs and alcohol. In comparison to some of the former colleagues that I've had, I was one of the lucky ones. When I hit rock bottom, I bounced and managed to figure out that I need to go and find a new mission, a new purpose. And it got me on a plane over to Africa. When I arrived in Africa, I was on a one-way ticket, didn't even have a check-in bag and landed there, had heard about anti-poaching some years before. It sounded like the next romantic adventure and I just traveled around Southern Africa trying to get involved with anti-poaching and just couldn't really get a start anywhere. I didn't join the military looking for, you know, to serve my country and I didn't go to Iraq to help the situation. I went there to make money and when I came to Africa, I came looking for a fight, not a cause. And so the people that I was trying to work with in conservation, they saw through that. They saw that I was there for selfish or personal reasons. It was only going to be a six month gig, riding on the coattails of the decades of hard work that they'd put into it. And I suppose that was the turning point for me, self-reflection, you know, a violent internal audit on who I was as a person. And I didn't like what I saw. 
Where better to find himself to search for his soul than Africa, the place that gave birth to humankind and human civilization itself? It's just one of those magical places. It's raw. I've spent a lot of time in tough places, you know, whether it be in war zones, whether it be in really impoverished places in South America, whether it be in some of the most rural and poorest areas in Africa, and you go out and the kids always have the biggest smiles of any places I've been. And then you see a kid pulling a, an empty Coke bottle along on a piece of string and smiling, and that's his toy. It makes you reflect on the material world that we come from in the Western world, and perhaps the, the important things in life are not things, their actions, their relationships, the way that we interact with the people around us. And I think Africa really taught me that. But another phenomenon caught his attention too. When he first witnessed a dead elephant brutally murdered with its skin flapping back and covered in dried blood, he felt a chill settle in his bones. At the time, the illegal ivory trade was on the rise globally and the population of elephants was plummeting, a decline that would see nearly 30% of the elephants on the continent disappear within a decade. Rhinoceros were also major targets, coveted for their horns, which are widely used as a component of medicines in Asia. From exotic trades to trophy hunting, local bushmeat hunting, and even exotic wildlife trafficking, there seemed to be no end to the motives that led people to the slaughtering or capture of wildlife, and silencing the people who attempted to stand in their way. Animals don't want a car, they don't want a house, they don't want a paycheck, they just want one thing, they want to live. And we as a species continually take that away from them. Now Iraq had given me a different lens through which to see the world. And then if you had shown me Africa a decade before, I probably wouldn't have cared about what was going on. I grew up as someone that used to hunt animals myself. It just wasn't something that resonated with me in any form of conservation or animal welfare. But I think age, experience, and definitely what I'd been through it made me start to see things differently and seeing what was happening to those animals, it really did impact me in a way that I hadn't been impacted before. I actually got an opportunity to start working with rangers and seeing what they'd given up, leaving their families behind for the majority of the year, working for a minimal salary, having come from just working in Iraq where we had any resource we needed to get home safely each day, and seeing rangers protecting the heart and lungs of the planet who hardly had you know, the resources to go out on a basic patrol whether it be radio communications or first aid kits. And it sort of really made me reflect on us as a species, as a generation, as a civilization, on where our priorities are. And I'd just been fighting the arguments of old men in Iraq for resources in the ground and dotted lines on a map. And these people had given up their lives for something much greater, something they believed in. And in a world where it's hard to be genuinely inspired, those rangers did it for me. Alongside that, we're seeing animals like elephants and rhinos being killed for their ivory or their tusks. An animal the size of a truck killed for something you can hold in one hand so someone on the other side of the world can sit it on their desk. That for me was confronting. It made me want to do something about it. It gets under your skin. It gets into your skin. It gets into your blood, into your DNA. He was lost. He was tethered to nothing. But because he was lost and tethered to nothing, he could devote himself completely to something new. The only two things I had was a certain set of skills and money. I had a, built up a property portfolio in Australia and I wanted to do something about it. And I think there's certain times in our life where we reach a set of crossroads and we have a decision. And you know we can either take the easy path or the hard path. And I can tell you what, selling up everything in Australia, moving to the other side of the world, away from my family and my friends into an industry that I didn't understand into a country that I didn't know. It wasn't an easy choice, but you know, I'd made the choice that I wanted to try and make a difference. He had begun to care deeply about the problem, but he didn't know how to solve it. And he had a lot of learning to do.
This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. From a distance, from our cozy lives, it's easy to look at a poacher and make assumptions. How could they kill and maim endangered animals? It makes no sense from that bird's eye view. But the more people Damien met and talked to, the more he realized that the problem of poaching was nearly as complicated and multifaceted as the war he had been fighting in Iraq. You've got subsistence poaching, which is people that are just trying to put food on the table. You know, we're working in some of the poorest regions of some of the poorest countries on the planet. And it's understandable you can't expect someone that doesn't know where the next meal is coming from to have a long-term outlook on the welfare of nature and ecosystems. They're just trying to feed their family. Now, on the other side of that is you've got commercial poaching. That's people poaching. It might be bushmeat, so laying hundreds of wire snares or traps trying to catch animals so they can sell the meat at a commercial scale into local markets and international markets. And then you've got people that are trying to kill animals for their skins, for their tusks, for their horns. And, you know, when you look at rhino horns selling for 35,000 US dollars a pound on the streets in Vietnam. So it's a different approach that you've got to take to each one of those. And each country, each province, each species, it has a different approach. And each, having come from the military, I naturally fell into cadence with the law enforcement side of conservation. Another time I didn't understand that was just a fraction of what it takes uh, to preserve these wilderness areas. You know, in my mind, the easiest thing to do was to go and train up a group of rangers and be the last line of defense. The person standing between the guy that's coming at these animals with the gun. Damien followed through. He liquidated his life savings to create the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, IAPF, in 2009, which incorporated his special ops approach to wildlife protection. And under the banner of the IAPF, he trained hundreds of male rangers. The military leadership of his past life re-emerged with a renewed and altered vigor, one inspired by the desire to protect we set up a ground level offensive against the local population and 165 personnel. We had drones, helicopters, aircraft, bigger fences and more guns. The simple thing or the most straightforward solution seems to be, you know, go out there and just be a, a wall of defense against these poachers coming through. But then you sit back and you start to realize you've got, you're on a continent that the UN population division says is going to have 2 billion people by 2040. You can't have a sustained conflict with two billion people. There's not enough resources. The concept that shifted us was how do we find the greatest way to interact with these communities and bring the communities on side rather than us versus them. Nature operates in balance. No one species exists in isolation. But they're part of a web of interconnected dependencies, like a living organism. But mass poaching was destroying that balance. So Damien asked himself, how can we restore it? How can we use nature as a model? And a new vision for his organization began to take shape. Our research, when we're trying to find a way to have the greatest impact in community development, 
There was an overwhelming body of evidence that told us empowering women was the single greatest force for positive change on the continent and in the world. And we were working in an industry where women were outnumbered in an operational role at a ratio of around 100 to 1. Now, there's different figures that will say women make up to 13% of range of forces, but quite often they're isolated to sitting behind a desk or stuck on a checkpoint or walking a fence line. They're not given the full opportunity to gain the operational experience necessary to be able to genuinely rise up into management positions. And so the largest line items in our budgets have always been salaries that we pay to rangers. So we were trying to figure out a way. So if we're in a male-dominated industry and in quite a patriarchal society in the areas that we worked, how could we get women into this role of being rangers? And if we could do that, we could turn the largest line item of our budget into a, a direct investment at community level, at household level, into the hands of women who spend 80 to 90% of their salary on family and local community versus a, a male that spends 30 to 40%. Now, on paper, that looked great, but we couldn't find a working example anywhere on the continent or in the world where it had been done. And when I say be done, I mean be done properly where women were given that full access to gain that experience. There was a lot of tokenism that was taking place where women were given certain access, but never full access. There was one other female ranger group in Africa, the Black Mambas in South Africa. Patrolling Kruger National Park, they worked hard to dismantle wire traps and act as community educators and role models to discourage poaching. Where they operated, there was a 63% reduction in poaching incidents, but they were unarmed, a decision that Damien felt put them at a high personal risk and positioned them to be less effective than armed counterparts. He wouldn't find his role models in the world of rangers, so he began to look elsewhere. We looked at the US military where all female counterinsurgency teams were starting to be used in Iraq and Afghanistan because the trust system with men had been broken down so much. And, you know, you're talking now about some of the most patriarchal cultures on the planet. And when the traditional leaders are agreeing to only sit down with all female teams, that tells you something. You know, there's only so many times you can kick someone's door down at three in the morning and put a gun barrel and a torch in their face and then expect to have a good relationship with them the next day. And ultimately, if you're going to succeed in these types of operations, you need to win the hearts and minds. There's almost zero cases in history of an occupying force having a long-term good relationship with the local community. So we need to find a way to get the local community on sides. And that became, you know, the idea became women. They decided to invest in a small experiment, 16 women for three months as a trial of their new idea. But first they needed to find a reserve where they could run this experiment and everywhere they asked, doors were shut in their face. They even tried proposing a group of four women unarmed merely patrolling a fence line, but it was dismissed as too risky. Finally, they found a 90,000 acre plot of indigenous owned land, a former trophy hunting reserve that reluctantly agreed to let them trial their idea. But it was far from perfect. We wanted three months, they gave us three days to do a trial with women from the local community. Basically those three days was gonna be the proof to everyone that this was a failed concept. We'd had so many closed doors at that stage, we weren't expecting to get a yes. When we got a yes, they said, well, you guys need to get started. We hadn't given much thought to you know, what the next stage was. You know, we had to mobilize some training equipment, some instructors, and it was very basic in the beginning. But what we hadn't thought about was, okay, who are the women that are going to be coming down to do this selection and do this program? Now, when I'd moved to Zimbabwe in 2009, it had the lowest life expectancy in the world for a woman that was less than 40 years of age. Now, whilst that has increased over the past 14 years, I think somewhere around mid-50s at the moment, it's still a very tough place for a woman in rural Zimbabwe and rural Africa. For that reason, when we set the criteria, when we discussed it with the chief and with the sabooks, who were the village heads, we said, okay, so the criteria is open to survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS orphans, single mothers, and those affected by the HIV pandemic. There's 87 women that came down. What we didn't realize when we, we set that criteria was that we were getting the toughest from society. Nothing we put them through 
was anything compared to what they'd come from or stood to go back to. And yeah, we didn't realize how that dynamic would play out. The women arrived, piled into pickup trucks and jeeps, bouncing over dirt roads deep into the scrubby plains of the reserve. They'd pack their meager belongings into duffel bags, suitcases, even plastic bags, preparing to spend as much time in the field as they could. As they approached, dust coated their foreheads and cheeks. The air was sweltering. And we sat through two days of pre-selection interview. Those two days were probably the hardest two days of my life, listening to those stories. You know, I'd come from the ultimate boys club of special operations, served as a clearance diver, remember taking a locker room vote when they were trying to integrate women into the branch to become divers. We said, we don't want to work with women. And looking back on that, there was nothing behind that other than ego and fear. And I built a career across three continents in training thousands of men for law enforcement, conservation and conflict. I'd never worked with women before, but sitting through those interviews, I realized I was guilty, maybe not of something directly against those women, but of being part of a culture that had kept women back for no particular reason other than self-interest. These women weren't victims of circumstance, Damien says. They were victims of men. He heard countless stories of abuse, violence, assault, rape, imprisonment, neglect, control. Sometimes a woman would pull up the leg of her trousers or roll back the sleeve of her shirt to display her scars. This is why I work with all my strength, one woman said, with all of my heart. Each of the women has their own unique story and each of those stories is a bloody tough one, hey? Women do a large proportion of the manual labor on this continent and they often do it for nothing. They do it in extremely difficult conditions. Those 87 women came down from the 87 that we interviewed, 37 started the selection course and from those 37, 16 were chosen to go on and become the first Akashinga Rangers. That was three months of intense training, basic training, followed by another three months uh, of on-the-job or intermediate training. And yeah, we haven't looked back from there. And, you know, there's been nothing that's been given to these women other than an opportunity, and they've done the rest. They've put themselves through all the hard work. They've been the ones that have dug deep and done the hard yards. We put them through harder training than we put the men through because in the eyes of everybody, they had more to prove. And very quickly, we started to see this form of almost social re-engineering as they started to get results, starting to make arrests. But also the way that the temperament that these women operate and you know what I see is a different value system in law enforcement. I'm not undermining the work that male rangers do or, or men in law enforcement do, but I've just, you know, the amount of arrests, the team now, this expanded team of almost 600, you know, including law enforcement and logistical and support staff, almost 1,200 arrests, and there's been very little conflict while those arrests are being made. And it's just a natural ability for women to de-escalate tension in conflicting situations. And you come to realize there's something much more powerful than biceps and bullets in law enforcement and, and its relationships. It's relationships from the women that come from these communities. It's relationships from the women that were raised in these communities. They're raising their own families in these communities. Nevertheless, the women are armed heavily Many people in Africa, particularly in the conservation world, took issue with it. At one point, Damien described himself as a pariah of conservation. Women could build relationships, critics said, but they could not, should not handle heavy artillery. But Damien just shrugged it off. This is the world we've created for ourselves, he says. It would be irresponsible not to arm them. Prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And in preparing for the worst, he was right. One female ranger was told, I'm going to burn your house. I'm going to rape you. I'm going to destroy your family. But the fact was, it was working. One of the key components of this project is we just didn't see any corruption. Zimbabwe ranks, I think, around 157 out of 180 countries on the Global Corruption Index. Now, we historically recruited men that came from sometimes hundreds of kilometers away to avoid collusion with the communities they grew up with. 
And that dispersed that largest line item in our budgets, the salaries for these ranges around the country rather than back into the local community. As we scaled beyond these initial 16 women, we didn't have to employ from hundreds of kilometres away. We employed from a couple of kilometres away, right next door to where these women were operating. And it put that money straight back into the community. And the community started to turn towards what we were trying to achieve. We went from being inside a reserve, looking out, trying to defend it, to being part of the community, looking in and saying, okay, all right, we're here now. There's a common interest in something that was scalable. And scalable only because we got the best endorsement possible. We had local and indigenous communities coming to us and saying, we want you to bring this program here. We had governments coming to us and saying, please bring this program here. It's not us going out trying to sell it. It's them saying we need this program in these areas. They also had no shortage of talent. Every time they sent out a call for recruits, women piled into cars and made the long journey out to the camp. Compared to the first 87, several hundred came out when the second announcement was made. Arriving at camp, they'd all be given fatigues. They'd tie back their hair if it was kept long. They'd pull on yellow reflective vests and boots and prepare for training. Some of you will die doing this job. You're going to be out there up against armed men. They will be willing to kill elephants or anybody that's standing in their way. And the only thing standing in their way will be you. But the women were unafraid. Like Damien, they had known the lowest depths of their own personal hell. I met a man who was already married, and his parents didn't like me as a second wife, but I was now pregnant, and I don't have money. Another joined after her husband was shot for poaching. He'd been trying to feed their family. But they, as the others, were still standing and still fighting for their family and themselves. And as the program grew, Damien witnessed ripple effects that he hadn't expected. Some of the women, their stories, I mean, you, you take a, I won't mention specific names, you know, in the interest of the women themselves, but you know, one woman raped at the age of 16, shed a child to the rapist under the local culture there, her not being able to afford to look after the child, that child was taken away from her and given to the parents of the rapist. Now she came and she went through the training. She, very much like the other women that come through the training within the first 18 months, had managed to buy her own plot of land, build her own house, and then used the, the lawyer that we work with and took this custody battle to court. And she won full custody of her daughter, who by this stage was nearly four and left the court that day with her daughter and was able to bring that young girl back to her own home that her mother had been able to buy with her own salary. Another woman, I will mention her name because she's just been you know, recently announced or last year as the first female International Ranger of the Year under the IUCN, Nuradzo Hoto, dropped out of school after her father died, couldn't finish high school, didn't have a job, was in an abusive marriage and has now bought a house and land next to the high school that she once couldn't afford to attend and has just put herself through university and studied biology, is now one of our head scientists in Zimbabwe working for the program. A woman who was abused so badly that the chief took her away from her four children to go and live with her grandmother and she had to leave her children behind. And I didn't know. She took a vehicle one day and her team of women and she told the women to wait outside and and she went back in and she took the house back and she took the kids back. And the husband left. And you know, it wasn't through, you know, the team of women going in, she told them to wait outside. So, you know, what these women represent in the local communities to other women and to young girls and to young boys as well. The chief of police told us in the first two years of this program starting, there'd been a 60% reduction in sexual assault cases in these communities. So it's women being seen through a different lens by these communities because they're standing up for themselves. When recruits arrive, Damien barks at them. His voice is loud, but you can tell he cares. If you've got character and spirit 
And if you do, we'll teach you how to fight. And he does. He puts the women through what he calls the four pillars of misery, hungry, cold, tired, wet, and drills them ruthlessly. They crawl on their elbows in the mud beneath lines of barbed wire. They run in seemingly endless laps, dropping to their stomachs to do push-ups at the screech of a whistle. They fight with hand-to-hand combat in the mud next to a freezing lake, wrestling to push each other into the water. They hoist enormous logs across their shoulders and run back and forth. They are taken to the extreme edge of their limits, of what their bodies and minds can take. But only a fraction ever drop out. A percentage, Damien says, which is exponentially lower than he saw with men in special ops training in the military. It would be impossible to quantify what makes this difference. It could be a desire to prove themselves. It could be life circumstances. It could be the personalities and determination of the individual women. But a large part of it is the desire to protect the animals that have been a part of this land for millions of years. I love my elephants like my children. So I must protect them as I'm protecting my children. We stopped looking at species in isolation and we stopped looking at parks or reserves in isolation. We started looking at landscapes and we figured that, okay, it's great to protect an elephant. It's a sexy animal. People love it. You can raise money off it. But if you protect an ecosystem, you protect a landscape, then everything inside that landscape is being looked after. Now, elephants are a great indicator species for how well we're doing in protecting a landscape, but it's not the only animal. There's no point having elephants if all the trees have been cut down. There's no point having uh, fragmented landscapes where elephants are isolated to one area because they can't transit through. They're going to be poached. And so they stay in one area and they destroy all the vegetation. So it's not just a single species, but it's this rich tapestry of biodiversity and how that all works together. And that is a machine that has just been evolving, as I said, for, for millions and billions of years. Now, our future as a civilization is going to be dependent on our willingness to preserve biodiversity. And to do that, we have to do it at mass. Now, we can't just protect small pockets of nature and hope that that's going to be the solution that we need on this planet. We need to protect as much of nature as possible. And the model was working. The women watched as their animals grew older, reproduced and reared their young. Populations of buffaloes, elands, lions, leopards and elephants were returning, sometimes for the first time in these women's lifetimes. They were garnering acclaim, winning conservation words. There was a buzz about them. Everything seemed to be going perfectly until something happened that threatened to derail the entire thing. We'd been quite some time into this program and we hadn't seen any corruption. We'd seen women arrest their own husbands for poaching. And then one day I get a phone call from one of the instructors and they're like, yeah, look, we've got a problem here. We've got food going missing. The women are stealing food out of the storeroom. I said, okay, just watch them. Go and see what they do. And the women were followed back to their own homes. They went back there. They got some of their own food and they got some of their own money. And they went to a local shop and they bought more food. And then they went to the home of a, a poacher who'd just been sentenced to five months in prison. And the mother was there with the four children and was struggling. And these women were feeding that woman and those children. And that's, I mean, that, that for me is just something I'd never seen or witnessed in law enforcement. Yeah, okay, they're stealing food from the storeroom, but you know, there's there was a purpose behind it and it's, it's one of those anecdotes yeah i mean it wasn't against a poacher but you know it was the, the actions of a poacher that led them to this and these regular sort of things that make you realize you got something different for so long we've been blinded by our egos from seeing the most powerful force in nature and that's a woman's instinct to protect it One of the things you've got to really respect rangers for, the biggest threat they're facing is not the poachers they're trying to stop, it's the animals they're trying to protect, whether it be elephant, lion, buffalo, 
snakes, just the wilderness itself being exposed there. And then we've got women that are going out on anything from a half-day patrol to, to seven, eight, nine-day patrols going out there for these extended periods. And it takes a certain person to be able to do that and to be able to see the evolution from women that had never stepped foot into, into these wilderness areas that now have the confidence to be able to do that and do it well and to be able to look for the tracks on the ground where poachers have been or look for the signs of poachers. You know, we've had women that have done 30, 40, 50 kilometre you know, follow-ups on foot and they'd been able to make an arrest and then been able to come back that amount of distance again with these poachers that they've caught. So, I mean, you're talking, you know, what I think is not only one of the toughest jobs on the planet, but also one of the most dangerous and one of the most noble. You know, one thing I love about this program, you've got a group of women doing one of the toughest jobs in some of the harshest and most remote locations on the planet, and they're kicking ass at it. They're doing it all on a plant-based diet. goes to show you that plant power can do very well. It may seem like a small detail, but in some ways, the plant-based diet is emblematic of the very core spirit of Akashinga. These women are protectors of nature to the very core. They protect each other and they protect the animals of their land. Eating them afterwards, however natural that might be, felt counterintuitive to their mission. And their mission is working. To date, Akashinga has made over a thousand arrests without having to fire a single shot. By 2030, they are set to have 2,000 rangers protecting over 30 million acres of wilderness. Conservation is not a conservation issue, it's a social issue. And when you have social impact, you have a conservation outcome. And that's what this program has allowed us as an organization to do is to see conservation from the side of the people. When you get the people on side, you will have a conservation outcome. And, you know, one of the main things that allowed us to do that was the de-escalation that women brought into this role of law enforcement and conservation. So instead of spending money on helicopters and more guns and bigger fences, we're spending it on employing more women. And we actually cut our operational costs by around two thirds. So the money we saved, we started investing back into healthcare treating people from the local communities, hiring nurses, getting drugs into local clinics, rebuilding local clinics, electrifying them, providing them with fresh water. We started helping to rebuild schools, rebuild kindergartens, provide resources and electricity and water to this infrastructure, scholarships, hundreds of scholarships to underprivileged children, teachers in schools that can't afford to have teachers there, drilling water in some of these communities that you know where young girls are dropping out of school or being sexually assaulted because they have to walk 10, 15 kilometers to fetch water twice a day. All of this makes a difference and all of this becomes the social impact that brings the community on, on side to understand that if we look after the biodiversity, these social impact programs can keep happening. And I don't want to think of it as a way of leverage or carrot and stick because it's not like that. We're just trying to protect nature. And if we don't protect nature, we lose the ecosystem services that nature provides. Ultimately, our future is going to be dependent on protecting nature and these communities will rely upon it. You can have a resource that can give once. If you cut down a forest, you get paid once for it. If you kill an animal, all those animals are gone, you get paid once for it. If you can keep these ecosystems alive and keep scaling them, they will keep giving over and over again. And, you know, whether it be through carbon credits, whether it be through tourism, or whatever services that can be bought, either ecosystem services or commercial services. But having this holistic model to approaching conservation and taking a social look at it as opposed to an inside looking out approach, it's what has scaled us from an initial 16 women sitting under a tree, learning on a chalkboard, protecting 90,000 acres to over 9.1 million acres now across four countries with a goal to have 30 million acres protected by the end of the decade. Now, when a group of rangers is sworn in as Akashinga, they take on a mantle with years of history and a future being written every day. 
The name Akashinga from the Shona words loosely translating to the brave ones was chosen by the women themselves. And now Damien's entire organization, including the IAPF branches of male rangers, which still operate, is adopting the name. A lot of responsibility falls on the shoulders of men to be better, I think, and drop the ego and be able to be willing to step back and let women move into some of these key roles by shifting the power roles of decision-making, law enforcement, management, you know, shifting those to women. We greatly reduced conflict with local communities. We brought conservation and communities together and we cut a core operating cost by two-thirds. You know, some people will look at women's empowerment as something they have to do. We're not a women's empowerment organisation. We're a conservation organisation. We just found a better way to do business. I think people just need to be more open-minded in how they go about the work they do in whatever industry it is. You know, and this is not just a battle that's being fought on one side, whether it's male or female, you know, we're all in this together. We're trying to make the world a better place. You know, this one beautiful backyard called nature, we're destroying it as a generation. I don't want to be part of the generation that defines our father as a species. I want to, I don't believe we can keep going in the direction that we're going. And, you know, regardless of what job we do, what industry we work in, we all need to make decisions and decisions that matter. And small changes in our lives can be big changes in others. I just think we need to carry that through in all of our thought process. And it's not just about growth and capital and and how big we can get and, and what we can do and the car that we drive. It's about what we leave, the legacy that we leave. You know, so many of us, you know, we've got children. We, you know, what kind of planet, what kind of place do we want to leave for the next generation? And I think that's what we all really need to reflect on. For Damien's part, he is constantly looking to expand the program, working hard to secure further funding and land opportunities. But he's more or less handed off the day-to-day leadership, training, and educational stewardship roles to his rangers, to the women of Akashinga themselves. There's nothing special about me. You know, I've been through all these military units, and you know, some of the guys that were on those units were much fitter, much stronger than I were. But when everyone else said it's too hard or it couldn't be done, I would always persevere. And it's been the same in this career of conservation. And it's not a career, it's a passion, it's a purpose. It's just been perseverance, just been that determined to stick it out and get it right. Like these women, Damien's life took him down to the dark, hellish depths of violence and suffering. But through his own perseverance, character, inner strength, and in my opinion, belief in a better world, he arrived somewhere he never expected to be. For me, just being able to sit back and like more and more on the sidelines and watch the initial women that came through, who are now the instructors and the leaders, and they're the ones that are graduating and giving the speeches at the graduation alongside the traditional leaders, such as the chief and local government. To be able to sit back and watch that and see this program sort of self-propelling now, that's You know, it's something I'm proud to be a part of that team. You know, we've got an amazing team that we've built up. And to see, you know, when there is a recruitment and the initial women, the message that they've sent out, you know, the way that they've demonstrated themselves in the communities and you have 500 women turning up for the next recruitment because they want to be like an Akashinka Ranger. Or you go into the local schools and you speak to young girls and they they want to be rangers. They want to be like these women and... You know, you speak to the kids of these rangers. They want to be just like their mum. That's pretty cool to be a part of, I've got to say. Margaret Darawanda, one of the original 16 rangers, says the men were the only ones being given a chance to do the jobs. But for a female, it was all you could do just to be married. You were not even given any chance to go to school so that you can fulfill whatever you need to do in your life. Now, Sergeant Maggie is a leader in her community and beyond. She's joined by people like Petronella Chingumbura, future Sibanda, Abigail Mazignari, Tracy Bazaruque, Primrose Mazliru, Nirazo Hoto, Wimbai Kumiri, Melody Mangonya. They are on the front line of what is perhaps the most important fight of our age. They are the brave ones. They are Akashinga.
Thank you so much to Damien Mander for sharing his story. And thank you to the hundreds of women who make up Akashinga and who are changing the face, methodology, and impact of conservation every single day. You can find more of their work at iapf.org. And please, if you can, go and check that out and consider helping in whatever small way you can to fund their cause. In the more than two years I've been doing this podcast, there's been two times where I've been so moved by the story that I immediately signed up to give what I could. The Kogi Indians are one, and this is the other. Please also check out the National Geographic short film that was executive produced by James Cameron and featured in this episode. You can find that on iapf.org and Disney+. And you can also follow Akashinga on Facebook. It's all in the show notes, so head there now. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to explore some similar ones, check out Gorilla Trekking with Praveen Moment, one of my very first episodes, and still, I think, one of the most powerful I've done. Ben Cole's story about the last dance of the Sun Bushmen is another great glimpse into the heart of Africa. So thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast, and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It takes just a moment, and it really does us a huge favor that helps us to keep making this show for you. And don't forget to visit aptpodcaststudios.com for more on their shows as well. So until next time, keep persevering, keep looking for connection, not conflict, and keep being brave to fight for what you believe in. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Armchair Explorer is part of APT Podcast Studios. Our theme music was written by the artist Sweet Chap. Jenny Allison wrote and co-produced the show along with me. And Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.